Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. Well, I'm back in California today after spending last week working in Hawaii with Kalea Pu'u Elementary School. Uh, this week, I'm working with San Benito High School for the next three days, and I'll finish my week in Green Bay, Wisconsin on Friday, head back home on Saturday. A uh, quick reminder of the upcoming events this spring, uh, the Summit on PLC at Work. That'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, February 28th through March 2nd. I'll be presenting on the 1st. If you're there, would love for you to come to my sessions. A uh, Grading from the Inside Out virtual training, two days. That'll be April 4th and 11th. Standards-Based Learning in Action, that two-day face-to-face training will be in Idaho Falls, Idaho, April 13th and 14th. Uh, The Assessment and Grading Conference will be in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th through 26th. I will be there on the 24th and 25th because uh, on the 26th and 27th, I've got the Grading from the Inside Out two-day face-to-face training in Salt Lake City. And the Assessment Center Institute, our big conference coming up in Las Vegas, that'll be May 24th through 26th. Links in the show notes for all of those events. Uh, if they should be of interest to you, you can also find them on the Solution Tree website. I also, again, uh, want to announce that I have a new book set for release this April. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, a proactive approach to teaching behavior outside the gradebook. This book is all about how we teach responsibility and other student attributes without distorting their achievement levels or their grades. Um, you can pre-order that book now. Uh, it ships uh, April 21st, I believe. I'll also have a link in the show notes for that, too. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Rob Dunlop. Rob is the author of the book Strive for Happiness in Education, so we dig into some interesting concepts around happiness, and Rob was on the uh, Teach Better bonus episode that I released in the fall, so uh, listeners, you'll recognize Rob from that. So we have a great extensive conversation about happiness. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to give you a mantra that you can follow when the student's self-assessment doesn't align with the teacher's view. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Rob Dunlop is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week with a brief impact update. Now, you might recall about a month ago, uh, it was two episodes ago because we're going every other week, I opened by talking about my one word fail, that my one word for 2022 was impact and that I proceeded to give that one word zero attention throughout the course of 2022. So during that opening, I vowed to hold myself accountable and provide some regular updates. So here I am. And if I'm being completely transparent, this still feels a little forced and a little performative. But look, that's just my stuff to deal with. I'm doing what I said I was going to do, and that matters to me. So, uh, And that matters more, actually, than any sort of awkwardness that I might feel. So uh, here goes. And by the way, I have to say thank you to the few of you who reached out after that opening and said, don't worry, Tom, you are making an impact and all of that. I, that was very kind and, and very much appreciated. I wasn't looking for that, but I just wanted to say thank you publicly to those who did that. My issue with the one word wasn't about my impact. I know I do that to some degree, but that's for others to judge in terms of the degree to which I make an impact. Whether my impact is tiny, small, medium, or large, that is really up to others to judge, and I can let that go. For me, the issue was more about how I was being impacted. So as I look back over the past month or so and ask myself, what has most impacted me? I would have to say it was my trip to Bahrain when I went to the NISA conference last month. There is just 
something next level about international travel that has such a massive impact on me. Now, I'm also well aware that this is coming from a place of privilege, as I know the vast majority of people in our society have little to no opportunity to travel, let alone go overseas. I'm aware of that, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to own that. I don't feel lucky because, like you, I work incredibly hard, so I don't chalk this up to luck. But what I will say is that I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities that have come my way over the years. I never take them for granted, and I am so excited each time I head overseas. Now, the first and most obvious point of impact is the intersection of cultures in a foreign environment. Now, where I live, the Metro Vancouver area, is one of the most diverse cities in the world, so it's not like I'm not used to living in a multicultural city. But it's my hometown, and being home always comes with a level of comfort and a slight, I think, bit of complacency in terms of what you see, what you hear, what you interact with, who you see, etc. Like you're going about your business each day as you live, so you don't really pay attention to your surroundings. When you travel overseas, you're outside of your element. Now look, it's not like I was backpacking and staying in hostels, etc. I get that. But being overseas, especially in the airports, you see the intersection of cultures and how people really do seamlessly get along. If you've never traveled overseas, the only impression you might have of people overseas is likely to have come from the news, and it's likely from stories about political issues, conflicts, or anything like that. Now, those are real, and, and I'm not trying to dismiss them, but when you drill down to the people level, you begin to realize we are more the same than we are different. I remember one time being at the Dubai Mall, and that was the first time I, I was invited to work with the American School Dubai. And I distinctly remember having a moment in the food court where I thought to myself, I think I've seen every creed and every culture from literally around the world in the past two hours. So I'd stopped to have a bite to eat. And I just had this moment where I realized, like, I don't know if that was really true, but it sure felt like I had seen just the intersection of the world at this mall. And what I realized... We're all the same. What did I see? I saw families. I saw couples. I saw buddies. I saw teens. The mall had it all like any mall anywhere. And we were all there interacting and shopping and getting along. And I'm not saying I was amazed by that because I kind of expect that. But it just made me realize that if you've never had the opportunity to go overseas or to any country outside of the United States and Canada, then you, you could be susceptible to the caricatures and the tropes about those, the people in other countries, right? I'm not saying that everyone who hasn't traveled is like that, of course. Um, I'm just saying you're potentially susceptible to it, that's all. And I know that these opportunities have come in front of me. It, it, these, they have given me such a deeper understanding and perspective of the world. The interconnectedness of the people of the world fascinates me. And each time I return from an overseas trip, I am immediately feeling the, the desire to go back. Like, I can't wait to go back. And each time I go overseas, I feel a little more connected to the people around the world. Um, it's not like I've been to every country. I haven't. But it always reminds me of the Mark Twain quote, right? That travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of people and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of earth all of one's lifetime. So that's an interesting quote, right? Travel is fatal to prejudice. And again, I am 
fully aware the level of privilege in the statement. Uh, that's not lost on me, the idea of people needing to travel. However, if you can't go overseas, then maybe it's the opportunity to go out of state or out of province. Maybe it's the opportunity to find a way to expose yourself to a little bit more diversity in a substantive way. Whether it's the way people live or whether it truly is cultures or whatever it is, whatever you can do, I think you should do. It takes you out of your element. It exposes you to diversity. It puts you in the minority. It's all of that for me. The impact of travel is always there. It's one of the reasons I love what I do. But the impact of international travel, going overseas, that hits different. And it has a major impact on me every time I do it. And I love the fact that I'm returning to those opportunities because the impact it has on me and how it connects me, how it makes me feel connected to people around the world is immeasurable. Joining me this week is Rob Dunlop. Rob is a teacher, a curriculum consultant, author, and inspiring speaker who believes that there's nothing more powerful than an educator who loves coming to school each day. His personal journey and his work with thousands of teachers, principals, and support staff has given him the insight into the importance of finding more happiness in education. Rob channels his passions for helping others into engaging, informative, research-based professional development that always leaves his audiences feeling empowered and inspired to make positive changes in their lives. And Rob is the author of the book, Strive for Happiness in Education. Listeners, you may recall hearing Rob on one of the Teach Better bonus episodes I put out in November. Rob was one of the guests for a short interview. So I wanted to have that Rob back uh, for a full interview to talk about happiness in education. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm super excited. Uh, we had a great conversation last time, so it's going to be awesome to continue it. Yeah, an expansive conversation. Great to see you again. Great to, uh, good to get connected again and great to have you back on the podcast. So looking forward to our conversation today. And before we dig in, Rob, to happiness and striving for happiness in education, can you fill in the resume a little bit? I mean, I talked a little bit about your bio, but help us understand the journey of your career, the professional journey so far, the pathway. Where did you start then the pathway that led you all the way to where you are today? For sure. I actually had a very interesting start to becoming a teacher. Prior, I finished teacher's college, but my job during university was a personal trainer for like weightlifting and things. And I, one of my clients ended up flying me around the world with him. He had a lot of money and he wanted this personal trainer and it, it just, it was a good fit. So I was actually took the year, I, I graduated teacher's college and then I was jumping on planes and we were flying like all, I was living like the highest lifestyle you could possibly live. Like I lived on the street that Lady Di's brother lived in South Africa with this guy. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting thing. I was, it, it almost looked like if you saw it as an Instagram life, it would be like the perfect life, but it was missing something. And I remember, I remember sitting in, in South Africa and I was had to come home for my sister's wedding in Jamaica. And he looked at me and he's like, you're not coming back, are you? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And because the reason why I wasn't coming back is several things. I missed my family and I wanted to be home with them. But I'd had these experiences in the classroom in teacher's college that were sticking with me. And I, I remember thinking, I don't really want my life's impact to be the size of some rich guy's biceps, who I really thought was an amazing person. I wanted it to be more than that. And so, and the reason why I tell you this is because when I came back into education, I came back with this like really strong why of what I want to do. I wanted to impact. I wanted to change kids' lives. And uh, I jumped right into it. And it was amazing. I, I absolutely love 
learning of pedagogy, the assessment, the classroom management, everything was kind of cool and, and inspiring. So I taught uh, middle grade, generally grade seven or eight. I, I'm up in Canada, so that's what we call it. Um, yeah. And and so that was going great. And I did it for like 10, 12 years. But then like when I, in, in terms of my happiness lens, things started to change. I started to not look as forward to going to school, still love the kids, still love the whole huge piece of it but i've started to shift a little and i started to watch what other teachers who were like 20 30 years in their career were feeling and they were getting tired and worn down and frustrated and, and cynical and i remember just feeling at that point I, I that's not really where i want to go with my career i didn't leave this amazing other career to do that and so my career uh eventually i really, really realized i needed to change i needed something so i stepped out of the classroom and became like a resource teacher which eventually led to me being um the curriculum consultant for technology across my board there's about thirty thousand students in our board so it's kind of a crazy job and uh this year they've added to my portfolio which you might love assessment and evaluation mm -hmm. and so that's why tom i was in every one of your sessions that teach better <laughs> I, like, I remember I, yeah i was following you around trying to figure it out um so currently that's what i'm doing right now um but through that journey from like really loving my job and, and wanting to come to school every day and, and be an amazing version of myself um, I learned a lot of lessons, um, and that's kind of what, what led to me um, speaking on happiness and gate uh, and education and writing the book. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I can understand where you're coming from. That early part of your career, uh, some amazing experiences, I would imagine, just traveling the world, but but not feeling maybe fulfilled and. As you say, even even as nice as that person might have been, as as supportive as they might have been, it's you're you're sort of doing something that didn't make you feel fulfilled. But we now know that we can reach out to Rob for two reasons. One is striving for happiness. And two, as this is early 2023, and many of you have may have committed to a new fitness program here in the new year, uh, we know we can hit up Rob for a little advice on how we can grow those biceps. <laughs> I'm hitting up myself we, right now. I got some work to up, do, so that's I'm right. back in the gym well, again. Yeah, wait till after uh, wait till after the uh, the Super Bowl, right? When you're yeah. you're celebrating. Um, so so let's dig into uh, this idea of striving for happiness. We know that self care and wellness and happiness, uh, you know, is being talked about more and more. We seem we see a lot more online. There's a lot more people that are writing about it, speaking about it. I recently, in preparation for for our conversation today, I recently read an article, uh, a blog post, I think, by Laurie Delthwaite Walsh, and I wanted to get your reaction to something I read in that article. Uh, the article was in, was entitled "Striving for Happiness Could Be Making You Unhappy," and I found that title obviously very catchy. Uh, and I wanted to read the article, so I want to read you a couple of parts and then just give you the floor to kind of respond to it and, and see what you think. So, so here's what she wrote in the article: "Quote: As many of us try out our gratitude journals, meditation, and positive affirmations, we often discover that they don't make us substantially happier. The same." often goes for reaching the goals that society values, such as a marriage or an interesting job or physical fitness. So is happiness just a myth, question mark, she says. Research suggests no. The problem, however, is finding a recipe that works for everyone. And she goes on to say, wherever we turn, we are encouraged to strive for happiness. We're told it will make us better at parenting, better at work, better at life in general. So it's no wonder most of us seek happiness goals to which we aspire, whether they're based on cultural norms, self-help books, or scientific research. However, this pursuit of happiness can be stressful, and the research suggests that it actually makes many people unhappy, end quote. So, Rob, 
How do we strive for happiness as educators without it having the opposite effect? Well, you know, that's great. And it, it might surprise you, but I agree with a lot of what she said in that article. I think like, I don't really like the fact she says that you can't strive to be happy because that's the name of my book. Um, but <laughs> I, I do agree with, and I, I understand where she's coming from though. One thing is, I think we got to be careful with, with regards to happiness is like you, you understand that you don't achieve happiness, right? That's why I like the word strive. It means working towards it. And because I think if you believe that, you're going to do these things and then just be happy and you're going to wake up every day happy and you're going to be unfazed by life and you're just going to figure out this magical solution to life that everything's perfect that's not realistic and that's not what my book's about that's not what i believe but the part i really resonated with me in there is when she talked about it's like a rest uh rest and and this is what i believe as well there's a part of my book where i talk about finding more happiness being like getting your eyes tested and getting glasses. And I'll just kind of give you a little thing on that. It's like, if we think about what happens in that process of getting glasses, we get like a, an email or something in the mail that says you get a checkup. Once you get that checkup, you go in and you sit in front of that machine called the ferropeter and you look through it and they change the lenses. And as they change the lens, they ask you, is it getting better or worse? And as you say better, they change it again. And they just, you keep saying better and better and better until you kind of are seeing a really clear image and then you get a prescription for glasses. Now I find the same as happiness. I think the key is that idea of checking in and, you know, if you're doing a gratitude journal and it's not working for you, then you don't continue to do the gratitude journal. Like right. the, the most valuable quote I'd read uh, in a book with regards to this was um, you have to listen to your life, right? So when we're doing these things, it's not the process of I do A, B, C, and then I become happy. It's, it's okay, try different things. Ask yourself, is this getting better or worse? If it's getting better, stick with that. And when she says recipe, I think it's prescription, uh, a prescription, like, because I think it's different for everybody. What works for me, I love using the Happy Feed app for gratitude. Exercise is fundamental to my overall happiness. Um, being like, like being immersed in something makes me happy. That doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So I'm just working on trying to figure out myself right now and figure out that formula for me. Um, but I, I do get what she's saying. Like, for instance, like you can get caught up doing all these things because they're supposed to make you happy and then they're not and then they're frustrating. Now you're just stressing yourself. I'm a different in, in certain ways because I like the idea of like streaks, for instance, like on my gratitude, I, I deal well with the fact that I've done gratitude for like, I think it's like four years and three days straight without missing a day. And, and it says you're at 1400, whatever, 50 something days that makes that works for me. But my wife, it doesn't work because she's mm -hmm. stressed out and she's like, Oh my God, I got to do this gratitude app. I'm on seven days in a row. I can't. And th that's causing her stress. It's not good. But I think a lot of times we don't listen to her lies. We just kind of take people's advice and, and, and think that it should be working. The very interesting thing I discovered when I was um, researching routines and habits too, is that, you know, we can pick up a habit that really works well with us. I'll just stick on like, I'll give you the example of, um, I was really trying to be more mindful in, in, in the moment. So I read this thing about attaching um, an idea to a physical object. So this lady had given me this little stone and I would put this stone in my pocket and I was really struggling at the time. And so every time I was, I would find my hand in the pocket and I'd play with this rock and it would keep me focused on what was important. Here's the interesting part. 
after six months, I was just carrying a rock at some point. Like I, I, I it, that, that emotional, they say with those habits and routines over time, if you're not switching them up and you're not aware of how they're impacting you, or is it good or bad anymore? It just loses its emotional connection to you. Mm-hmm. So now I, the rocks on the shelf over there, but if I go to do a speaking engagement or I'm stressed and I have a meeting with my boss, I will naturally pick up that rock and I'll find myself getting that same benefit from it by using it sporadically. Um, right. So it's really about just listening to your life and just, and, and trying different things and saying, you know, and I, I think you, we really need to understand is that you're going to have peaks and valleys in your life. That is the biggest thing I think I focus on all the time. And when you realize that peaks and valleys are natural, that everyone goes through peaks and valleys, that uh, like a valley is followed by a peak, it's easier to remain optimistic and it's easier to work in that direction because you're, you know, you, you know, it's just part of life. So the idea of just being happy all the time, it's, you, you would understand that that's not the case. For you just sure. got to try to get on those peaks more often than not. Yeah. The, the, uh, that listen to your life really resonated with me. I think sometimes uh, we aren't very good at listening to our emotions. The irony of doing a, you know, a gratitude journal and feeling stressed about it. Pay attention to that feeling, right? I've always, I, I shouldn't say always, but one of the things I've learned through my life is to pay attention to how I'm feeling because how I'm feeling is produced by what I'm thinking. And if what I'm thinking is stressing me out, then that's not the right formula, prescription, recipe, whatever word you want to use for it. So I love that that advice because I think it pay attention to how you're feeling, pay attention to to listen to your life, to know whether or not that particular strategy is working for you. And if it's not, then then change it up. And I love that idea of switching it up or finding a way to use it sporadically uh, with with the rock as well, because it just changes it and allows allows you to get the benefit of what you wanted to get before. So uh, I think that's great advice. Now here's here's another thought I have because I think sometimes we fool ourselves or we 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 tell ourselves stories. And, and we do, you know, we do a lot of things as we try to f- strive for happiness. How do I know that I'm authentically happy? I mean, I might think I'm happy. I might continually talk myself into being happy. Like I'm, I'm happy, damn it. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but, but how do I know, like how, from your perspective, how, how can I authentically self-assess and know that I'm happy? Well, I think the thing too is it's not always knowing that you're happy. You might know you're unhappy. Like there's that, again, okay. going back to that peaks and valleys, we don't always have to be happy. And, right. you know, like I had a rough spot at the beginning of the year, if I'm being honest with you, and I wasn't in a great space. And so my, I, I was aware that I wasn't happy in what was going on. And one of the biggest things I've learned um, with regards to being in a valley or being unhappy is stopping slowing down enough to say okay if i'm not happy what do i need to change what what is it that i what is it that i need to make the shift or or what do i have to do differently or or maybe i have to try something or and so i I think with the idea of like authentically knowing it's just authentically again listening to yourself and, and listening to that little voice in the back of your head that's saying you know i'm getting really bored here and and being okay with that and saying okay but now what do i do and the expectation is i i, I don't walk around thinking like am i happy like I, I like i think there's it's like varying degrees like i think part of it is like the feeling you get like when i wake up in the morning am i excited about the day am i dreading the day and like am i overly stressed am i am i drawn too thin right now and then I, I do believe, like, because one of the things that really, I, like, the, I, I actually wrote a book before Strive for Happiness and Education and never published it. 
and uh, it was on. I, I, I when I, when I was talking about watching those teachers and, and watching them lose their zest, I actually was at the beginning thought it was motivation that I was after. So I was, Don, you would laugh so hard, man. I would be driving around listening to these motivational compilations where like dudes are screaming at you, telling you you're a beast, and like, and I thought that's. I thought I just guys keep up that, keep up that. And the weirdest thing, I just took a pivot one day. I met this one teacher. And she just, and, and I loved her energy. I loved everything, her, the way she was doing everything. And she was in the later part of her career. And I walked out and I was like, that's what I want to be when I get to that age. And I realized it wasn't motivation. It was that she loved coming to school. She loved being around kids. She loved still teaching. She loved, like she was learning high-end technology in her 28th year of, of education. And I was just like, so I, at that point I was like, it's not so much I got to be motivated or it's like, I, I just want to enjoy coming to work every day. So I think that's the idea of like, you know, not having this expectation that every day is going to be great, but having this idea of like, you know, am I, am I, do I want to get up and go to work? The other part of it is what really got me when I was reading about happiness was when they were showing those stats from business, like happy people are 31% more productive, three times more creative. And uh, they have like 23% more energy. And I was like, you know, when, when I really reflect on it, when I'm, when I'm doing well, when I'm in a great spot, I'm productive. I'm a beast. Like I'm, I'm going at life. I'm, I'm waking up early. I'm getting at it. And when I'm struggling, I'm just a little bit more apathetic. I'm, I'm not really into things. So I think for um, like, there's different symptoms for different people. And I think we also have to really address, like some people have some, some serious mental health issues and, and, you know, it, it, so it's not the same for everybody. Everyone's kind of playing a different game, but, yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. wake up and think how am I going to be happy every day. I just think yeah. how am I going to, if I if I'm struggling and not in a good spot, I say what do you got? What do I got changed? What do I got right. to mix up? So I guess looking at it and thinking about you know can I be can I be happy? And yet in those moments where I'm unhappy, life happens. Look, we can't. We don't want this to be a thing where every day it's just you know zippity doo dah and, and everything's just yeah. wonderful and it's a you know all of that. We get that. Life happens for sure. But how can I recognize, even in those moments that are causing me stress, they're causing me anxiety, they're really difficult things, challenging moments in life that you have to overcome. How can I know that in the backdrop? I'm still happy. Like I'm a ha I'm happy internally. Like I feel that. And yet I've got these moments. Is there, is there a way that I might be able to, so I don't get caught up in that moment to say like, I'm supposed to be happy. No, it's okay to feel unhappy in that moment, though you are overall in your life happy. Does that resonate with you? Is that something that you think we can distinguish? Yeah, I, I think in a way, like, I don't know if this will answer the question for you, but like, okay. that's what gratitude journaling does for me, right? So, okay. yeah, like, so like, I'll, I'll just be transparent. My mom is very sick, like she's been sick for a long time. And like, you know, I, I got some really bad news about her. And mm. Uh, but I've been practicing gratitude on this gratitude app for uh, called Happy Feed for years, uh, mm -hmm. like a year prior to it, right? And and you know what, like, when I'm struggling now, what I need to know is the good things in my life. So by being able to go back through this app, it's got this really cool little jar I hit and it throws mm -hmm. me random moments. It reminds me of all the good things that I have in my life, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. when, when that helps me pull out and you know, also I do this activity in my workshops where it's like a happiness timeline. I draw this line and I start at the beginning of my career and I dress line, I have one for life too. And what you end up seeing is it looks like really squiggly. Interesting thing, I've done it with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teachers the line's never been straight. Everyone's life looks like this roller coaster. 
But the, yeah. the positive side of that is with each valley that we're in, we get out of it. And then right. we end up on a peak again. So for me, yeah, I don't know. I, I think everything like this, when you're dealing with emotions, it's just, it's just being reflective, like being honest with you and, and giving yourself space to think like when mm-hmm. I'm, when I was really, re- I was really struggling at one point, the book is, was actually self-therapy, right? If I'm being honest with you, the book was, I was in a bad place. I need to get out of it. So I started doing all this reading and re- researching. But the one thing I wasn't doing when I was struggling was I wasn't thinking about how things were impacting me. I'll give you a very, very simple example. It's almost embarrassing. At my worst mentally, you know, my, my routine was go to work all day come home, get the kids sorted out. And then I would drop on the couch and I would watch cops for like oh. hours, like cops that, you know, that show bad boys. And, <laughs> and, and then I would turn on the news for another like hour. And I was just drowning myself in this mm-hmm. negative media. And so like, it, but eventually now I realized why wasn't I asking myself, like I do this every night and I leave feeling more and more cynical about the world. And why am I? And I wasn't because I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't even aware of thinking about how things were impacting me. And now I realize, like, my media diet super important. Like, how I feel when I'm fit is really important. Like, I, I recently was injured and I couldn't work out. And you know, now my body is naturally in this in this reflective process of saying, "Wow, this really impacts how I feel day to day, not just physically but emotionally." Right. So I think that's it. And I think when we do it, I think it's like come up with different things but for me it does help having like like a note I one thing i want to do and i've never done it is i want to start making videos for myself like i mm. want to be like when i'm in a great spot or when i figure something out like a, a series of little videos saying rob it's not that bad you've been here before you've got out of it you've done this 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 or you know you might be feeling a little this way because when you're telling yourself that or when you're reading your own writing or things you, it, it, i think you can convince yourself pretty easily that you know you, you got to center yourself a little and start listening right. to how you're feeling and make those changes. So I, I honestly think I might become a motivational speaker for myself at some point <laughs> in the near future. I'm sure for you, it'll be a bestseller. The videos will be well watched. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, no, it's good. That, that's a, you know, that's a really great strategy of, of, uh, you know, talking to yourself. That's the self-talk, but it comes from outside. And I wonder, I'd be interested to hear from you if, if you do do that, um, does it, does it, hit different? Does it resonate because it feels like it's coming from a third party? It feels like it's coming from outside of you, even though it's you. Will it resonate differently with you? I'd be interested to hear how, how that goes if you do go down that road. Yeah, so uh, like and maybe, that. maybe you make those videos available to other people as well, right? So we can all yeah. get the motivation from Rob. Um, yeah, that may be an idea. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I just started a YouTube channel for you. Um, <laughs> That's all just, just 10% of the royalties, Rob, is all I need. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, now, this one might get me in a little bit of trouble because I really am not trying to be insensitive, but I want to ask you, can the proclamation of self-care uh, ever become a crutch? And here's what I mean. I, I know that sounds a little cynical, um, but I, I think it's important to ask. And and, and again, I don't, I don't want to be insensitive. I, I'm not trying to come across as insensitive and, and I'm not really trying to be like that. I'm not trying to call people out or anything like that, but... Um, can, you know, you know, like anything, the term self-care can get hijacked and then be turned into a crutch, right? It, it starts to become something, you know, nobody argues against the idea of self-care, that's for sure. But where do you think is the line between practicing self-care proactively, 
So that means we can take measures to ensure that we can show up at our jobs and, and be effective in our jobs versus using self-care as a kind of ripcord whenever I feel stressed at work. Like, so I can just say, oh, I need to practice self-care. I'm going to opt out of this or I'm going to opt out of that. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute. So, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, and maybe I'm asking the question inartfully, but am I right to think that self-care is what we do to show up at work and and be effective and efficient at what we do rather than using it as a crutch why we can't? Am I am I on the right track with that? Do you know what I'm asking here, Rob? Do you, I, I do you get where I'm going? I 100% okay. get what you're saying, right? right? And right. I, I think like just get myself in trouble with you is that I think sometimes it's easier for organizations just to say everyone needs to practice self-care and take their piece out of the puzzle and say, well, just practice self-care and then it's solved. And it's like, no, there's, there needs to be some fundamental changes within right. what we're doing to, right. to find more like happiness or fulfillment or whatever, like meant for mm -hmm. uh, better well-being. But I think the interesting thing with self-care is 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 it actually self-care what people are referring to like i find there's this big semantic thing around everything like people will will say to me i remember someone challenging me on like rob i don't believe in happiness i believe in joy and i'm like it's semantic like it's like <laughs> to me it's just semantics I, I, right. you can you can you can nitpick those words a bit but like same with self-care and i think i think it like i think with self-care you gotta ask is it self-care like is was me binge watching 12 hours of TV uh, over the weekend self-care. Did that, right. did that make me like actually feel better? Pro like for me, no, that makes me feel more apathetic, more tired, more behind, more like, so it's not helping me. It's not self-care. I'm not caring for myself. So sometimes I think we deem something self-care and cause it's what we actually want to do. Right. It's yeah, like, we want right. to, I want to go to the spa or self-care. I want to do this self-care. And, Hey, if self-care, if that actually works for you, if, if zoning out and watching TV works for you, but like when I refer to self-care in my book, I'm thinking of things that are actually caring for yourself, like right. your sleep habits, your, your physical activity, your nutrition, like when you're, those things are self-care, like, like investing time in that. And my belief is, is at least for myself, cause I find it really tough. Like, I don't like to, to say like, because I feel that that's what everyone else should feel. But for my feeling, sometimes if you're not engaged in something, if you don't have something that excites you, a project, or I'm the happiest when I have something cool on the side, like I like for me. And so like people will say, well, you know, you should like get off that computer in the evenings. Well, but what if that's where I find joy? In? Like I love video editing. Like I like when I wrote my book, I was like, it was so engaging. Like I was, I don't know if you know the state of flow, but like, I was getting to my computer at like eight o'clock and then I'm like coming to bed at like three in the morning. My wife's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I thought it was like 10 because time just zipped by. Right, and, right. and so like, I don't necessarily think like, I think for sure. I think people now with the, the way everything is, I think sometimes people struggle and don't know what they want. And, right. and they haven't really put enough thought into this idea of like, yeah, but they just know they need something and maybe mm -hmm. a day off is that, or maybe, like taking stuff off their plate is that, but sure. you know, when, you know, I look at back at the beginning of my career, which I would say would be my happiest. It was when I was under the most amount of learning, uh, doing the most, I was coaching everything. I had no curriculum stuff, like resources. I was just, and I was so happy because I was actively engaged in what, what I was doing. I think we really got to be careful. Like I, um, I love that, um, Tony Robbins and one of his things I saw 
I actually saw him live and, and his big thing was progress equals happiness. And mm-hmm. I'm like, for me, that's, that's part of it. Right. But I, I know that about myself, but I get it. There's other people that say, you know, doing like watching TV or, or disengaging. Sometimes I think um, that idea of pulling back within education is, is they don't feel appreciated. And right. so th- there's a lack of like what they feel is appreciation or the job is like, there's 10 other things getting stacked. And then they're like, well, I have to do something. So I'm just going to take away from this because I find that sometimes they just keep adding more and more to the plate. And then right. I think that is a bit of self care. I, I think that's sometimes you need to do that. You have to say, Hey, this is, I, I'm, I'm aware I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm not able to yeah. do the things I need to do effectively time to like drop something off. But, yeah, I think I think when we do when we practice self care, we actually I say gotta say to ourselves, are we actually caring for ourselves? Are are we yeah. doing what's what's really gonna get us back to that space where we wanna be? That's a good that's a great way of putting it. Uh, am I caring for myself or am I just opting out? I don't feel like cutting the lawn, so I'm gonna practice self care and I'm gonna binge watch the office on Netflix or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, it has to it has to be acknowledged. I mean, I, I asked the question a little bit provocatively, but it has to be acknowledged that certainly bosses, supervisors, systems, societal norms, expectations can all add to our plates in a way that makes people feel overwhelmed. And they do need to find ways to care for themselves and, and find balance in their lives. And I, I don't even know if balance is the right word. I think just finding a way to navigate through all of that. So it has to be acknowledged that it isn't all self-inflicted. Uh, but I do find at times I come across things online or I see a video or something like that where self-care, like again, as I said earlier, many things, it gets hijacked and it becomes this term we use to opt out as opposed to saying, I need to practice self-care so I can opt in and I can show up uh, as my full self in my job, in you know, at home with my kids or, or whatever. So I just, I was curious to see what your perspective on that was. And, and uh, it, it's an interesting thing to observe uh, as, as self-care becomes more and more prominent, uh, in, uh, in, in education for sure. And, and in all society. So I want to ask you about your favorite ways to course correct. I think you've talked a little bit about this, but let's imagine, you know, I'm having some negative self-talk happening about my competence. You know, I'm, I, I feel overwhelmed as a teacher and I don't feel I'm a good teacher. I, oh, I'm not very good at this job. I don't feel competent. Um, I may even have some negative self-talk about the school I'm working in and my principal. I'm just, I'm just going down that pathway where there's some real momentum behind my, my negative self-talk. Um, I know everyone's a little different and I know we can't prescribe for everybody the same thing, but if you had to give some generic advice on, or tips on how to reverse that thinking, so I'm going down this pathway of negative self-talk, what would that advice be? How do I get myself out of that way of thinking and, and course correct and find myself uh, back on a pathway that is more desirable? Yeah, I'll tell you a little story with this one, Tom. It's, 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 it, was, it was really like what you described was me to a T. Um, just would get on a negative tear and just, and this is what was causing me trouble. Like I, I, I had no shame in saying that I almost left education twice um, because I was so upset. And, and what would happen is exactly what you were talking about. I'd go down that negative road and then I would just continually pick up speed on that road till it ended mm-hmm. up in a, a situation that wasn't desirable for anybody. But I, I really want to tell this story. Um, well, I, I was in a situation where something had happened at work that I didn't agree with. And I still don't agree with it. Like, it's not like I had this full 180 on this. Something happened that I thought was, was, I didn't feel valued and whatever. And so 
sent me down that road. And for months and months on end, I was struggling. Like I was getting more angry, more frustrated. Every email, every comment that was negative, I was just putting it into that machine. And, and, and then eventually like I was, and I was bored wide and what I was doing, I was becoming toxic. I was feeling it, talk about it outside. It was, it was, it wasn't a great spot. And I came home one day and my wife or wife was watching this happen to me. And, uh, this was when I was right at the point of leaving education. And she hands me this book by Sean Aker called before happiness. And I was like, oh. and then I was like, you know, sometimes you're a bad spot. Like you, you just like, I don't know, whatever. And I was like, but I read Sean Aker's first book, which really got me thinking about happiness and all this stuff. I was like, you know what? I'll read it. He literally changed the way I saw the world in the first chapter. What he talked about was the idea of multiple realities. And I was like trying to get my head around that because my reality was what I was doing. I didn't want to go to work. Like I wanted out and that I was disrespected and all these things. So this was the, the re reality. So I was like, what's this idea of multiple realities? And it was super interesting. So he had this line in this book it's something like happy and successful people can see multiple realities of the same situation and i'm like trying to get my head around that i remember it was late at night and i said you know what like i'm, I'm gonna pack it in i'm just gonna go to bed but i went to bed with that in my head and i don't know that this is what happened but so that morning i wake up and i have this routine where like i have some trees in my backyard so like i open my blinds in the morning i look out the window just to start my day usually and um I like my eyes completely well shut with tears. And I had this flush of like, I know it was gratitude, but for three, four months straight, I hadn't seen anything, anything positive. I just saw everything negative. And that morning I woke up, I was able to see the people that I'd met, the impact that I was having, the learning that was taking place, like all these things that I was not paying attention to. I looked out this window and chose to look at a different reality. And, mm -hmm. and for me, that is so key. And I like, I love when Suzanne Daly, author of Teach Happier, she talks about that. Um, it's, it's, uh, what was I going to go with that? She talks about, uh, oh man, I'm, I'm having a blank here. Where are they going with that? Well, I'll get it. But she, it, it's basically the idea of like choosing that to, to focus on. Sorry, I'm stuck on this thing because she's got this amazing piece right here. It's not coming <laughs> It'll up. come to you. It'll come but to you. But anyways, for me, it was, uh, it was a crazy moment. And it was making me think to myself, you know, if I can do that in that situation and shift my thinking, how am I going to be able to implement that strategy? And I'm telling you right now, that's what I do. Like when I get myself in that situation, I think to myself, what's, what is the alternate reality that I'm not seeing? Because mm -hmm. we, reality is so subjective, right? Yeah. Oh, I know I was going, I got it. Yes. All right. Perfect. She perfect. Talks about, she talks a lot about rational optimism mm -hmm. and rational optimism is where you're, you're, you know, you're looking, you're, you're, you're validating what's going on. You're validating what's happening in the world. But at the same time, you know that through your actions, you could get to a better place, right? So it, like the idea of optimism sometimes see like that toxic positivity kind of deal where everything's fine, everything's going to be great is, is not good. But the idea of like recognizing like, you know, I was in a tough spot and, and these things happen or my job is really tough or I got like all those things are important pieces. But if you can just know that through your actions and behaviors that you change, how are you going to ch change the course of that? It's a really amazing way to look at it. I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story. I put a pool in my backyard, you know, one of those pop-up pools. 
And yep. uh, it said, and my neighbor's like, I put sand down. You got to put like, so I put sand down and then I pop it up and I put a, t- a tarp down, I think too. And so I get this thing up and I'm about to fill it. And I'm, I, as I'm filling, I do typical man thing. I read the instructions and it said, <laughs> don't put it on sand and don't put it on a tarp. I did. I put it on both. So now yeah. I'm angry and, um, and I had to put on this level surface. So my wife comes out and I'm shoveling sideways on the lawn. Like I'm scarfing my grass up to get this level thing on a whole different part. And I'm like, you know, you know, like when Chevy Chase loses it in that movie, yeah. I'm like that. Yeah. Like I'm like, and my daughter's coming, daddy, are you okay? And I'm like, no, just leave me alone. So I remember calling in for dinner. I'm covered in dirt and I'm sweating and I'm angry. And uh, after dinner, my wife says, you need to pack this in. Like you're not in a good spot. And so I went outside and I was just sitting there having a drink, looking at it. And I remember specifically saying, what's the positive reality here? Like, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. And the positive reality, when I got it, my wife comes out and she's just like, you, you're totally different looking. Like, what's going on? I'll tell you, that you'll, you'll hear, hear in a second. I said, so the next morning, I wake up at 5.30. I grab that shovel and you should have saw this piece of land I dug up. And uh, you know why? Because that day I had a pool and a beach. And we had a beach day because I'd moved the pool off the sand nice. and I made it into a beach. And I was like, there's a positive reality, right? Like what, yeah. because by being able to slow it down though, be able to like take it away and go, I can just, mm-hmm. and, and, and go, what am I focused on right now? I'm focused on being embarrassed. I'm focused on doing these things not right. Why am I not focused on like, what's the, what's the solution to, to make it a better day? And that was easily my favorite day of the pandemic. We just had drinks on the beach in our own backyard nice. and we swam in this little, 16 by 8 pool was the best. Uh, yeah. Lemonade, lemonade, lemonade from lemons, right? I yeah, mean, that exactly. is uh, exactly how we look at it. You know, it, optim- you mentioned optimism and optimistic or toxic positivity and all that. I think optimism is one of the most misunderstood concepts. I think an optimist is more likely to acknowledge the negative than a pessimist is to acknowledge the positive. I, there's an irony to that to me because I think optimists say, yes, here is the negative. Here are the things that I have to deal with, but I know I can overcome it. I know there's yeah. a pathway forward. I can find my way forward. I don't know that the pessimist will look at a situation and think, but there are some positives here. Like that to me, when, when a pessimist, for example, looks at an optimist and says, oh, you're too optimistic, you're too naive. I think there's an irony to that because I think the optimist is more likely to acknowledge both sides of an issue, but have a mindset that says, I can get through this. We can work this through. This will happen. We'll make this happen eventually. So it's just an interesting idea. Uh, that, last, that in general, yeah, people should read up on optimism and pessimism. Yeah. It's a very fascinating because sure. I did a ton for my book and like how it's yeah. not like you're, you're not one or the other and it's on, but when, I thought that one of the most impactful things are like, cause we're not necessarily optimists or pessimists. We, 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 mm-hmm. we switch depending on the situation, mm-hmm. but the, the most interesting thing I read about pessimism is these three P's of pessimism. And it's like, when you're being, when you're acting pessimistic, um, three things are generally going on. You're personalizing it. And I look back to all my problems. Like you're making it about yeah. you where it's not about you. It's right. um, it, pervasiveness that it's leaking into other aspects of your life. And the big one for me is I see when I am um, acting that way or I see people acting that way is permanence. And this mm. is what I think is the key is that you, when you're pessimistic, you don't see an end in sight. Like you just think that this is the way it's going to be. Whereas mm. an optimist is, that doesn't see things as permanent. They see things as flowing. I, I always say, and, and almost every talk I, it comes up, I think, my favorite book of all time is Peaks and Valleys by Spencer Johnson. He wrote mm-hmm. Who Moved My Cheese, sold 38 million copies or something like that. This book is like, it should be the book of the pandemic because it leads people through this in this very nice and calm way, a reflective way of like, 
accepting those peaks and valleys in life and, right. and you know being optimistic that you know mm-hmm. in valleys you'll get the next peak i think it's a i think if you, anyone wants some reading to do i think that's a great space to start excellent great recommendation um rob last question as we finish up uh before we get to our final two questions i always ask would you agree that the best time to strive for happiness, the best time to practice self-care is when things are good? I, I think it's easy to look at a, a crisis or uh, a negative situation and you know something that's less than a crisis and say, okay, now is the time for me to practice self-care. But building habits to me seems most effective when you're in the right headspace and you start to build those habits to sustain that. Do you agree with that? And, and do you think that's a way that, that people can sustain their happiness despite the peaks and valleys of life? I do agree. I would, I would use the word. It's the easiest time. Like, you know, like to do it when, when you're in a good spot, when you're feeling there, I definitely think, I think it, but sometimes it's easy just to be like, well, everything's good. You know, and and go back to that peaks and valleys. It talks about like, he talks about how, like why he asked this guy, why do you, why do you get off the valley? And he's like, well, you stop doing, or why do you get off the peak? He says, cause you stop doing what got you to the peak. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you do all these things. So, um, sometimes when we get to a peak, we stop doing the things that got us there. So say, you know, we, we work really hard and we get ourselves in good shape and we're sleeping and all this. And then we get there and we're like, oh, life's good. I'm going to go do this, 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 and this now. And then it's like, well, it end, you end up in a different space again, right? So I, I, sure. I do think it's easier. And personally, that's a strategy I use. Like I'm, I'm practicing this even on the best days. Um, and because I know it, it sounds pessimistic, but I know there's bad days ahead. And right. I, and I just want to be, I, I just want to be, but I think that's the realist part, right. Of like, yeah. the, our lives are designed to, to, to flow like that. So it's just, you know, so yeah, I, I would a hundred percent agree with you. And then, mm-hmm. but I do believe like, I do believe like, and, and just to add a piece to that is I do believe that in the valleys are the times I've learned the most crucial lessons about myself. Okay. They're hard lessons to learn. They're ones that, you know, yeah, I, I learned one, with regards to being open to change one time, I was about to be immediately transferred to another school. And, uh, mm. but it, it, sometimes those moments force you to reflect, like you right. have to reflect, you get to the bottom and you're like, I can't do this anymore. And then you start to think about, well, what do I got to do differently? So sometimes maybe people get there, but like, I think the easier road is, um, is definitely doing it on the peaks, but I'm telling you, man, like I have, I always say in my sessions when, I talk about my peaks and valleys. I'll say I like, I'm most grateful for my valleys and the lessons I've learned there because I feel like in the future I can use those to help me out again. Yeah. I don't, I don't uh, doubt that at all. I think the, the, you know, doing uh, something, practicing self-care, striving for happiness at any time is better than not. Uh, I just think about maintenance and how we begin to build those habits when we're in the right headspace for sure. So fascinating conversation, Rob. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. I've got two questions left for you. These are questions I always ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction you want to. It doesn't have to be about what we've been talking about. You can go in any direction. But the question is simply this, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I think that we, I think a lot of people in education know that we're in a, a really bad spot with regards to mental health of like our staff and our students. And we can see within like education, like specifically in the States and certain places where educators are leaving the profession. And, and so I worry about that. And, but like, you know, it's one thing to talk about it and it's one thing to say like, oh, everyone should practice self-care and do all these things. But and like, I guess what keeps me up at night is what are we actually doing? Are we making that a priority? And my mm-hmm. belief is that um, what's best for our students is having healthy 
like engaged, happy teachers. I, I think so. Like, you know, but we can't talk about this stuff and then do the stuff that's continually overwhelming and overloading, or we, we're not changing the compensation in certain places. Like, how are right. we, how are we showing teachers um, more and more that they're valued and, and cared for and that they're a meaningful part and how do we condition mm -hmm. them and help them be that teacher they want to be. And then the only way I think it happens is it becomes top priority in, within the education system. I don't really think it is. I think it's talked about. I think we approach it sometimes with um, intensity, not with consistency. Like we do like a little one piece here or, you know, let's do a little meditation at the beginning of one staff meeting and <laughs> like whatever it's going to be like, it's, it's right. like, how do we, how do we build this in and how do we sure. make sure they feel supported? Because we, we know now, like I'm in a lot of schools with a lot of students and there's a lot of mental health and it's getting it more and more, but how do we, how do we start moving that ball in their other direction? I think, I think it's a big conversation that's going to take a lot of time to get us um, back to where we would prefer to be. Right. So I think that's yeah. the one that kind of stretches me a little. And I don't even 100% know the answer. I just, I just know that it's an issue. Well, we, we have to figuratively and maybe even literally put our money where our mouths are when it comes to, um, you know, the, the idea of it's easy to throw the term around self-care, as you said earlier in the interview, but it's another thing for organizations, leaders to, to make that a very purposeful part of, of every day uh, when people come to work and, and how they're showing up every day. Let's end on a, uh, a lighter note. Um, I love food. Uh, I, I would fashion myself as a bit of an amateur foodie. Um, and you live in St. Catharines, Ontario. I should have mentioned yeah. that earlier. You're a, I, I did, but, you know, fellow Canadian. Um, yeah. I just want to know, where's the best place to eat in St. Catharines, Ontario? Well, I'm not going to give you the answer you want uh, because, like, I'm not a foodie at all. But, like, I, like I'm an experienced guy. Like, where it's, like, my favorite place to eat is, believe it or not, it's Harvey's. I, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 and I'll tell you why, because I went there last night, um, my son and I, that's our place. Right. So, yeah. and it's, uh, it's an amazing place for us. Like whenever my yeah. wife goes anywhere, we, he looks at me and he doesn't have to say it. And I just nod. And then I love it when like he orders his manners are like so top shelf, like yeah. he's, you know, and it, it just, we had these great conversations there. So that's mm -hmm. my favorite. I'll give you one. Cause I know if you your idea might be like, if I'm in St. Catharines, I'm going to go somewhere. They have this it, Anything, yeah, hole in the wall, my, just something. I'll give you my wife's. There's this one called um, Lake House. It's uh, right off the highway, but it, it looks over the water. Um, mm -hmm. But what she loves about it is and the food comes out really hot. Like, it's it's really good food. But, you know, sometimes it comes out. It's, like, piping hot. I don't know how they do it. And yeah. so whenever – the only reason I know that it's so good is, like, she always hints about me taking her there. So. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it's all about – yeah, it's just about where I'm going with the people I'm with. So. Oh, wow. I wish I was more of a foodie, but no, no, it's, 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 you know, I just like, I love food and, and, and I get, I get that Harvey's thing because my son and I, my son's in his early twenties, but my son and I go to a lot of hockey games and soccer games here in Vancouver. And our thing is five guys. We hit yeah. up five guys and grab, grab a burger. And then we head to the game and it's become a routine for us to the point where it just feels like that's what we're supposed to do. And, you know, we devour those burgers and head to the Canucks game or something like that. And yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. There's a, there's a connection there that it's more than just, you know, Harvey's and the burgers. It's, it's a connection with your son. So if I'm ever in St. Catharines, Ontario, you're going to, you, you're going to take me uh, to these places and, and make sure that, uh, what was that place called again that your wife likes? Lake House. 
lake house so you'll you'll take me there but i'm gonna give you uh, both experiences we'll go out for lunch and dinner <laughs> we'll go for harvey's that's right the one thing love we, it. You know, no we're gonna go to harvey's meaning you me and my son we'll all go yeah perfect we'll have our, we'll actually have you as a guest in our lunch <laughs> excellent <laughs> i love it i love it i i feel i'd feel honored to uh <laughs> to crash that party and then we'll go to the lake yeah. house uh for dinner uh, uh, uh and it'll be be wonderful it'll be great i'll look forward to to get myself out to st Catharines sometime uh awesome. so we can connect uh listeners you can and should follow rob on social media twitter instagram the handle is at rob dunlop edu rob is also on facebook and linkedin i'll have links in the show notes for all of those uh connections um also the website uh, rob's website www.motivatedu not not Y O U. It's motivated and the letter U uh, dot com. So www.motivatedu.com is the website as well. Rob, uh, great to see you again. Um, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Great to connect with you again. Yeah, every time's a pleasure, Tom. Great talking to you again. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to drill down on student self-assessment and give one specific mantra to remember within one specific situation. And that situation is where the student and the teacher do not agree on the student self-assessment. This will be a quick one, but no less important. So here's the mantra. The one who does the overrating does the explaining. Now, obviously, the best case scenario is one where the student's self-assessment aligns with the teacher's view of the student's demonstration. That, of course, would be ideal. But if it doesn't, then we have to reconcile the difference. So that's where the mantra comes in, right? The overrater does the explaining. Now here's the first scenario. Let's imagine this scenario where in the eyes of the teacher, the student has overrated their performance on either a single aspect of quality or overall. In this scenario, uh, it'll be up to the student to explain why the student feels their performance was higher than the teacher had determined. Now, it's also important for the teacher to be open to the case that the student makes about their performance. So we have to be open, and the student has to be able to justify it. They can't just make a self-assessment claim without justifying it. But the teacher also needs to be open to the idea that they may have misclassified the student in terms of their performance. There are many reasons why students will overrate their performance, but the two most significant mitigating factors that influence accuracy in self-assessment are age and proficiency. The older a student is, the more accurate their self-assessments tend to be. Now, the research on self-assessment is actually not clear on whether it truly is age or whether it's school experience. Those are typically synonymous, so it doesn't really matter. You can basically think to yourself, the older a student is, the more school experience they've had. Therefore, they will tend to be more accurate uh, in their their self-assessment. Now, the other mitigating factor is proficiency. The more competent you are, the more accurate you tend to be. Like the more you know about something, the more you'll know what you don't know. So in any self-assessment situation, students would need to justify their assertions, like the whole idea of claim evidence reasoning, if you will, right? So if the student overrates their performance, then it will be up to the student to justify that rating. And the teacher, again, has to be open to the fact that they may have underestimated the student's performance, but it's up to the student to make the case as to why they believe that they are at that particular level. Any justification is for overrating is going to have to come from the criteria that's been shared with students and developed and, and the teachers and the students have been working with all along, okay? So there has to be a justification for that. Now, the second scenario, let's imagine a scenario where the student has underrated their performance, 
right? In the eyes of the teacher, the student has underestimated the degree to which they've either met a particular aspect of quality or they've underestimated their performance overall. When this is the case, the teacher is the one who initiates the explaining because the teacher is the one who overrated the student, if you will. By pointing out to the student how they have underestimated their level of performance, the teacher is then going to show the student as part of the criteria, uh, they're going to show them why they've underestimated their performance. So again, to follow that mantra, the teacher is the one who did the overrating. Therefore, the teacher does the explaining right off the bat. This will also, again, as I said, be an opportunity for the teacher to help the students see the performance criteria more clearly and understand it more. And specifically, it'll help them understand why the teacher said what she said about the degree to which the student has met the standard, met the target, or met the specific aspect of quality. Now, there is sometimes this thought that our stronger performing students are quote-unquote tougher on themselves, but I do think at times that's a bit of an illusion because the less proficient you are and the younger you are, the more you tend to overrate your performance. So it looks as if our stronger performing students might be tougher on themselves, but it may just be the illusion of the overrating of those who are less than proficient. We also can't, in that scenario, underestimate the performative nature of self-assessment proclamations, especially if it's being done publicly. That some of our stronger performing students maybe don't want to come across as boasting or arrogant, so they kind of purposefully underestimate themselves publicly to avoid maybe any negative attention they, they have from peers. So I wouldn't take it at face value when some of your stronger performing students underestimate their performance just that they are being tougher on themselves. I think there's a lot of things at play there that we have to investigate. You could also apply this mantra to peer assessment and teach the students the same perspective that if in your eyes when you're assessing someone else's performance if the peer you're working with has underestimated their performance then it's up to you to show them why they're wrong and why they've underestimated their performance. If they have overrated their performance, then it would be up to them to show you why you are wrong, why you have underrated them or, or whatever. So again, the mantra, the overrater does the explaining. Keep that mantra in mind, okay? Anytime there is a discrepancy between the student's self-assessment and your assessment of their performance, whoever does the overrating does the explaining. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember, please follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to please check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring, as well as the link for the new book I've got coming out in April. Next time, my guest will be Dr. Shelley Moore. Shelley is a researcher, author, and expert in the area of inclusive education, so that will be our focus for our conversation. She is a fellow Canadian and a fellow Vancouverite, so I'm looking forward to that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.